The reading for the day is the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. The Lord God proclaims concerning Edom, we have heard a message from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Look now. I will make you of little importance among the nations. You will be totally despised. Your proud heart has tricked you. You who live in the cracks of the rock, whose dwelling is high above. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. If thieves approach you, if robbers by night, how you've been devastated. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If those who gather grapes came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau has been looted, his treasure taken away. All those who are your allies have driven you to the border. Those who were on your side tricked you and triumphed over you. They are setting your own bread as a trap under you, but you don't see it coming. Won't I on that day, says the Lord, destroy the wise from Eden and understanding from Mount Esau? Your warriors will be shattered. Teman and everyone from Mount Esau will be eliminated. Because of the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you will be destroyed forever. You stood nearby, strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were like one of them. But you should have taken no pleasure over your brother on the day of his misery. You shouldn't have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their devastation. You shouldn't have bragged on their day of hardship. You shouldn't have entered the gate of my people on the day of their defeat. You shouldn't have looked on his suffering on the day of his disaster. You shouldn't have stolen his possessions on the day of his distress. You shouldn't have waited on the roads to destroy his escapees. You shouldn't have handed over his survivors on the day of defeat. The day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, so it will be done to you. Your actions will make you suffer. Just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so will all the nations around you drink. They will drink and swallow quickly, and they will be like they've never been before. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will drive out those who drove them out." The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau straw. They will burn them up completely, and there will be no one left of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the arid southern plain will possess Mount Esau, and those of the western foothills, the land of the Philistines. They will possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. Those who remain of the Israelites will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and those left from Jerusalem and who are now living in Shepharad will possess the cities of the arid southern plain. The deliverers will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The word of the Lord.
Amen. Hey, everybody, my name's Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And now we have heard the entire book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it is the fourth or fifth shortest book in the Bible, uh, depending on how you count. So now we have worked through 2nd and 3rd John, Philemon, uh, and Obadiah. And this one is the first one that brings us into the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, You'll notice they are getting longer, and they are going to get uh, too long to read in one sitting in, like, the reading of the day in just a few books. And so, you know, we are getting deeper into this 66-book library and seeing that though the shortest ones are real short, they do, you know, they get a little longer over time. But Obadiah is still in the genre of books that only has one chapter, hasn't been broken down any further, and, um, and it's one of the minor prophets. So there are the major prophets that have the really long books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, and then there are the minor prophets. There are 12 of them. Obadiah is one. And the prophets uh, have a lot of similarities in their books. A lot of people... Um, A lot of justice folks really love the prophets, but they can be really difficult to read on their own without context because it's a lot of doom and gloom and judgment. And so those of us trying to reclaim a God of restoration, of reconciliation, of joy, can sometimes have a hard time reading these books that are just paragraphs and paragraphs of divine judgment and wrath and you're going to get what's coming to you, which let's be real, that's what is in here. So uh, we're going to get into some context for Obadiah, uh, the overall message that really is absolutely consistent with the gospel of love and reconciliation and building the kingdom and toppling empire. And uh, we're going to reclaim what this means for us. But you'll notice how difficult it is to read these scriptures without any additional commentary. I'd love to hear in comments, you know, what are your first reactions to this, like hearing just the whole book of Obadiah without any further context, what are your big takeaways? Is this something that makes you think, oh yeah, God's coming to save us? Or is this something that makes you think, oh man, God is full of wrath and terrible, and this is why I never cracked the Bible, or at least I never cracked the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament? Um, I'd love to hear just where you guys are at on first reading of this. Um, another thing though, I, you know, part of this, part of the goal of this series is to help resource people. So you're going to get my take on it. Hopefully you guys can talk with each other in comments and, and build your understanding of this book through your community at Zao. Um, please know that I prepare for these sermons by, by reading and learning and investigating and, and figuring out what other people have to say about it. And I encourage you to do the same when you're reading the Bible. One resource that I love, that I find really accessible, it's not like the world's most progressive. Um, So if you're looking for like hot, radical, lefty takes on scripture, I wouldn't go here. But if you're looking for just like a solid, basic understanding, an overview of a book, um, especially with a relatively mainline reading or at least um, a a reading, if you want to understand how the book has been understood kind of in your contemporary zone, I highly recommend something called The Bible Project. Bibleproject.org. If you wanted to, for instance, after we're done here, go listen to the one on Obadiah. It's less than five minutes. They'll tell you a lot of the same information you'll hear 
from me, but I'll just take my interpretation of it further. So they're going to give you kind of a summary, and it's going to interpret it a little bit for you. Know that any text, any um, reading of the Bible that's doing more than replicating um, in the original language is doing some amount of interpreting. So a translation is an interpretation by necessity. And interpretation means we're deciding some meaning. We're making choices about what it means. Um, So these summaries are also making choices to interpret in certain ways that I may or may not agree with. But the Bible Project is a great resource, especially if you're somebody who likes watching videos. Um, They have these little videos that can give you an overview. And I just want you to know that like I, as a as a trained pastor, as a person who loves the Bible, as a person who has like a dozen different Bibles and studies pretty deeply, I routinely go to the Bible Project to BibleProject.org and look up quick videos to be like, oh yeah, remind me of that overview or what is the kind of standard take on this or, you know, I just want somebody to walk me through an outline. So great resource, highly recommend. Now, one of the things that I talk about when we're reading the Bible in general, I mentioned already today that it's a library, not a single book. There are 66 different books in this library that's contained just in one binding. Um, But all those books were written across thousands of years, and they have not only different historical contexts, but different literary contexts. So these are all in different genres. Um, And if you've ever read, you know, a nonfiction book, next to a fiction book, next to the newspaper, you understand that genre means so much. And it changes everything about how we're supposed to approach a text, what we're supposed to take away from it, and how it's supposed to impact us. And one of our biggest struggles with the Bible is that we approach it as this kind of across the board, it must be the same thing. And we take it in this kind of more along that newspaper or historical book, like, you know, historical account sort of way a lot of the time, um, especially when we're in the Old Testament. And then we try and approach it like a guidebook or a rule book or instructions in the New Testament. And that just doesn't work because that's how, not how a lot of it was written. So some of these genres don't even exist anymore, and we have to kind of um, approximate, given our own understandings of what writing is and how we communicate, I actually think that the genre that Obadiah resides in is one that's going to be relatively familiar to a lot of us. Again, this is me kind of shuffling it sideways into something that makes modern sense to us, but I don't think I have to shuffle that hard. And the genre that Obadiah is in is called the diss track. Now, if you guys are familiar with hip-hop and East Coast-West Coast feuding, you know there's a big backlog of diss tracks. But even if you're more of a T-Swift fan or into pop music or 90s alternative, you've all heard a diss track before. Taylor Swift wants Jake Gyllenhaal to know that we are never, ever, ever getting back together. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. That's a diss track. I actually sing a diss track to my daughter a lot, but I only am able to sing a handful of words to her before I have to start kind of mumbling and humming. So I really like Mariah Carey's Obsessed, and I sing to Micah, Why You So Obsessed With Me? And then I have to start mumbling because the actual lyrics <laughs> to Mariah Carey's Obsessed are, you're delusional, you're delusional. She's singing this to Eminem, who claimed that they had a relationship that she denies. You're delusional, you're delusional, boy, you're losing your mind. Why are you so obsessed with me? And boy, I want to know, lying that you're sexing me, 
when everybody knows, it's clear that you're upset with me. Oh, finally found a girl you couldn't impress. Last man on earth still couldn't get this. The diss track. Enter Obadiah. <clears throat> so Obadiah is a prophet, but Obadiah is speaking for God here and speaking to the people of Edom. And like any good diss track, you know, it's got some wordplay, it's got some cleverness, it's really puffed up about the self and intentionally dissing, disrespecting um, another person. Uh, and, and by the way, if Mariah Carey isn't your jam, if T-Swift isn't your jam, if East Coast, West Coast rap battles are just like not for you, you still have heard this. Like Alanis Morissette, you ought to know. Um, there, there are so many. I think even like James Brown, no, he didn't write it. He caused a diss track. But anyway, all of these feuds that happen that kind of originate these diss tracks, that's the context for the meaning of those songs. And while the songs themselves may be clever and catchy, they may have good wordplay, they may have really like clever insults, you can't really get the full meaning of the diss track unless you understand the feud. So I'm going to give you the background on the feud that originated the diss track that is the book of Obadiah. All right, so back in the day, like way back in the day, there was this guy Abraham. <laughs> anyway, Abraham had a lot of descendants. That's kind of the whole premise of this book. Um, Abraham had a lot of descendants as promised by God. And along that line of descendants, there were these twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, I'm not going to go all the way into Jacob and Esau. Actually, if you want to learn more about Jacob and Esau and their little feud and a really amazing, very queer take on it, J.J. Um, Warren, my guest this last week on the podcast, Jonah and the Peacock, that's the scripture that he picks to go into, and it totally changed the way that I understand that story. Um, so totally recommend you check out that conversation if you want even more backstory or, like, even if you're just, like, big into drama, um, it's like a really interesting family feud with all kinds of like divine implications. But I'll summarize the important parts for this feud by saying they were twins. They, uh, they were in conflict, in major conflict um, growing up. These kind of, this mythical retelling of their childhood and adolescence and young adulthood shows that they were like really different people. Um, Jacob was was more the like stay at home with mom, cook a nice meal, tend the sheep kind of guy. Esau was like out in the wild, hunting, um, doing a lot more like traditionally masculine things in his culture. Um, and, and they really, they got into it. <clears throat> Esau was born like seconds before Jacob. The story goes that Jacob had, like, had Esau by the heel when they were coming out. So they have been fighting since they exited the womb. Um, but Esau got out first. And that caused problems too. And so they were fighting for the birthright and all this stuff. Eventually, they went their separate ways. And when they went their separate ways, they received two different names. Jacob became known as Israel, like the nation Israel. And Esau became known as Edom. And this entire diss track is written for the people of Edom. So what happened was you ended up with two nations on either side of the Dead Sea. And one was Israel and one was Edom. The descendants of Jacob 
who are kind of our main characters in this book, and our, you know, the chosen people of God. This is who, you know, we're team, we're team Jacob, we're team Esau when we're reading the book of Obadiah. And then there's, I'm sorry, team Jacob, team Israel. And then there's Esau and Edom. Thank goodness that uh, Sarah doesn't have to uh, fingerspell all these names today. Um, send her love and prayers. She uh, would love to be here interpreting ASL today, but um, wasn't able to do that. So uh, send her some love. But maybe a good one because we got a lot of names up in here. So Israel and um, Edom. And I'm just recognizing that like I'm making the map like I'm looking at it. So doesn't matter. The point is you've got these two little nations and they are little they are underdog nations. They share a common ancestor. They have kind of like family tensions even. And so relative to other nations that are out there, some of which are big old empires, they actually have a kind of closeness and a kind of shared lineage that also comes with a lot of baggage. So, you know, it's almost like they're more so rivals because they have so much in common or because they have this shared history. It's a little bit like, um, <clears throat> you know, family that doesn't talk anymore. There's so much history, there's so much baggage, but there's also so much connection. And so you've got this little, this, these two little nations connecting with one another. On either side of them, though, are massive empires. They don't have any connection to them. They don't give a hoot about them or their well-being. And in the course of history... Uh, Israel has gotten kind of compressed and compressed and, and has had to like hold its own against these big nations, these big empires. And at some point, they fall entirely. The Babylonian Empire swoops in and just utterly destroys them, takes over Jerusalem, destroys the temple, like does really horrible stuff. So you would think that this diss track would be to Babylon. And essentially, like, there are, <laughs> there are diss lyrics throughout all the prophets. Um, and, and it's, like, even more of a really big theme. Um, nobody wants to be Babylon, right? Like, Babylon is not only the baddie in this moment, but be, has become the stand-in in the Hebrew Scriptures for the baddie of all time. Um, but in this particular track, they're focusing their energy on their estranged brother, nation, Edom. Because what did Edom do during that takeover? Did they come to the aid of Israel? Did they, did they say, oh, this is our long-lost brother nation. We should go rescue them. No. Did they just stand idly by while this empire came and ravaged Israel? Well, that'd be bad too, but they didn't do that either. In fact, what they did was they profited off of the Babylonian uh, takedown of Israel. They swooped in and started looting uh, Israelite cities as well. They uh, captured some of the um, some of the exiles, some of the refugees that were fleeing Israel, were captured in Edom, and some of them were even killed. And so, what Edom has done here to start the feud, like to continue the feud, right? The feud is ongoing. But the thing that Edom did to deserve this diss track was put its weight, throw its money, 
uh, choose its alliances behind the Babylonian Empire. And they further betrayed Israel and this family connection by profiting off of this horrible, horrible event. And so, you know, the, the Bible Project calls this a series of divine judgment poetry, which I, I you know, if divine judgment poetry isn't just another name for diss track, I don't know what it means. But there's a lot of like allusions and alliterations in here. Edom, um, like, um, like that kind of difference between Israel and, or I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau, Israel is a, a pastoral nation. They're more into agriculture. They're more into like sheep herding and, um, and that kind of a thing. Edom is more like the, the kind of uh, mythologized understanding of Esau. They're more hunting. They're more, the, um, Edom actually means red, and it's like a, a more geologically red um, kind of area. And it's, um, they're like outdoorsmen as just like a culture, just like a cultural difference from Israel. But they live up in the mountains. They live up in the mountains, and... Um, and there is this sense, because of this battle, this feud, there is this sense of superiority that Edomites have. Presumably, Israelites have the same attitude towards Edom. But Obadiah comes in on that tip and starts using some wordplay. He's basically like, oh, you think you're so high up in your mountains, but guess who's going to bring you down? God. It's this, <laughs> you know, you're, oh, you're high as an eagle's nest. But you know what? All of it comes crashing down. And so the two major bits of wordplay in here um, that have survived enough for us to understand it, because I'm sure there are allusions and, and tricks and riddles and um, references that we just don't get anymore. But the most obvious ones are this analogy between you're so high up in your mountain, a.k.a. like how we would talk about being on a high horse. You're so high up there. You're so lofty. But you're going to be lay low. So it's this kind of like high-low um, imagery. But then beyond that, there's the fact that Edom in Hebrew is spelled with the same words as Adam, or same letters as Adam, which um, we know from our conversations around Genesis is the word for human being. That's where we get the name Adam. Adam means human. And so... Obadiah actually starts zooming in on Edom and talking trash about Edom. You're going to fall down from your heights. Your mountain isn't so high that God can't cast you down kind of energy. But then, again, like any good diss track, it actually comes back to pump up the person who's writing it or the, person, or the community that's being represented as the wronged party. And so over the course of this book, Obadiah kind of takes a turn from like, Edom, you're so lofty, but you're going to be laid low for betraying God's people, your own brother. Um, and makes that turn to like, Edom, you know what? All humans, Adam, all humanity is going to know who the real God is, who the real people of God are. And eventually God's going to redeem us 
And all people are going to understand. And all nations who come at us are going to be laid low. And all people who try and loot and pillage and, and profit off of violence are going to know who the real God is when the people of God are restored in Jerusalem. And, and now the kingdom of God is here because God is God. And who are you? So that's kind of my summary of Obadiah. And, you know, I think we can appreciate the genre um, and say this is such a beautifully written, such a powerfully written diss track that, like, we've preserved it because we need to understand how this all went down. But it feels a little hollow, I think, to me if we leave it there. Because, you know, what in God's kingdom is this kind of revenge uh, poetry? Maybe it's really helpful for us navigating injustices now, but ultimately that's not the kind of relationship we want to have with Edom, right? So this isn't supposed to be the end. This is a snapshot of a moment. But when I really sat with this scripture, when I pray on this scripture, when I try and understand what all of that historical context means, a certain number of things start to jump out at me. And really what we're seeing here is a warning from Israel to Edom but also to the Adam, to all peoples, in all nations. And that warning is not a threat, although, like, there is also that in this track, because hashtag diss track. But, like, it is, it is an accurate assessment of the course of creation, right? Everybody loves to quote MLK, the arc of the universe is, the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it's like, hey, I know this story is a really long one, but you got to remember the end because the end of this story is the redemption of God's people. And when we take away all that bluster, all that hubris, all that kind of in-your-faceness of the prophetic divine judgment poetry diss track, which is there and is cool and has its own power and beauty. But when we like go deeper than that layer, actually what we're seeing is a proclamation of the end of things that in the end, what wins is justice. In the end, it isn't Babylon who comes out on top. And Edom needs to know that. And actually, all people need to know that. The people of Israel need to remember that. Because this distract is also, you know, validation for the people who have fallen. Israel just got their ass handed to them in some really violent, troubling ways that's going to cause generational trauma that, uh, that is probably still reverberating. And, and that's not the first time, and it wouldn't be the last time. And so they can feel really abandoned. But they too need to zoom out and see this bigger picture. It can feel like the, the evil has been vindicated. The Babylonians are evil um, in their, I mean, the, the actions of the Babylonians are evil. We don't want to characterize all Babylonians, um, you know, in any type of way. Human beings are inherently good, but our actions can be extremely evil. And the Babylonian empire itself is absolutely evil. But Edom has decided to throw down with evil, has decided to throw down with empire. And what this book is about is reminding Edom and then therefore Adam, all people, that actually empire doesn't win in the end. And that can be really hard to hold top of mind because, you know, when we think about it uh, historically, we can go like, oh yeah, who, who are the Babylonians? But in the moment, the Babylonians were everyone, were everywhere. They had all the resources. They had all the violent means of taking whatever they wanted, and they did. 
and they felt ubiquitous and they felt eternal. And the reason we have called this today, Rome doesn't fall in a day, is because during the Roman Empire, which, you know, I know that the popular saying is Rome wasn't built in a day, but it doesn't, it, you know, that when it, when it came to its peak, it felt so ubiquitous. It felt so everywhere. And that didn't happen in one day. That happened overnight. But that can fall too. Because now, where's the Roman Empire? But while it was active, while it was dominating the globe, it really felt everywhere. The reaches of the Roman Empire are absurd in how far that they impacted all continents. And certainly, if you lived local to, you know, kind of the Middle East and, and Europe, the Roman Empire was inescapable in like a daily way. And so the thought of the Roman Empire falling, how? And I think that that happens to us too when we think of our modern empires. I think that happens when we think about the United States we're especially immersed in it because we live here. But again, the, the global impact of the decisions and choices of the United States is absurd. The way that it has impacted the lives of people um, far beyond our borders and, and dominated the globe in a really destructive way. So it's, it's very hard to think about a time when, for instance, the United States government won't really matter to most people. But it will come. And it doesn't happen in a day, but it will come. Similarly, we talk a lot here about capitalism. Capitalism is an imperial force in our lives in a lot of ways. It has that same dominating energy. It's really hard for us to think beyond the time of capitalism. But it will come. The policing that we live under systems of racialized oppression and violence. These feel so life-dominating that it is hard to imagine a time after them, but it will come. It will come. And so Obadiah is warning the people of Edom who have chosen to invest themselves in Babylon, in Rome, in the United States, in capitalism, in racialized violence, in oppression. Obadiah is warning them, saying, hey, you feel lofty now. You feel like you're on the coattails of something now. You feel like you're profiting off of something now. And you're making that calculation because you're like, well, this is the biggest guy in town. And, and you know, this is going to be forever. So I'll just ride these coattails and get what I can. But you know what? That's not going to be forever. That empire is going to fall too. And in the end of things, you will be flat on your ass with capitalism and Babylon and Rome and the U.S. government. Because those things will all fall. But you know what won't? You know what will soar like the eagle? You know what will build beautiful mountaintops with cities that never fade, with peoples that are well and good, where everyone is taken care of, where people are reunited with one another and the divine? God. And that's where we're placing our bet. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're investing in. We're building towards that end. What are you doing? You think you're all hot now. But the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. And I want to be on that bend. I want to build toward justice. I want to be preparing for that future now. Because God's will will come into fruition. 
And I know it can be easy. It can be easy to just ride the coattails of systems of oppression because you feel there's so little for you now. There's so much scarcity now that you want to feel big by taking what you can from a system that loots and pillages. But that's not how it goes. Not with the people of God. The people of God believe in God. Believe in God's kingdom. Believe in God's plan. And we have each other's back. And so if you stick around long enough, you're going to see who comes out on top. It's God's people and it looks so, so different. So different than the empires of this world. Now Obadiah, in its brevity, doesn't leave room for something that you can find in other prophets nestled, sandwiched in this same part of the Bible. And that's to clarify that in the end, in that time when God's kingdom has come into fruition, in that time when all is made right, it's not just the people of Israel who have been reconciled, who are cared for, who are able to rest and love and laugh and enjoy their lives. It's people of all nations. And those nations, those nation states, those empires have dissolved. But those people, those people who are good amidst those evil, evil empires, they are free and they are together under the banner of God's kingdom, which is new and different and holy. So that's Obadiah. And I hope, I hope that you can see the promise and the love of God in this diss track. But this is how complicated our scriptures are. And they deserve a deeper look. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for holding room in your creation for so many of our feelings and expressions, our creativity, including our feelings of hurt and rage. God, we pray that you would help us to see the layers of truth in your word. That we could know that everything in here is a glimpse, a key into holiness. If we look for it with you in mind, if we look for it with your spirit, with the wisdom of your people, with the knowledge of those who spend their lives studying you, and with hearts aligned to your goodness. God, help us to see these texts with creativity and joy. Help us to bring uh, just an open heart and help us to see what is still true. What can teach us for our lives today? And God, in light of the lessons of Obadiah, may we be a people of your kingdom. May we renounce the empires of this world. May we learn from Edom's mistake May we not betray our brothers, our sisters, our siblings. May we hold steadfast to the vision you have for the kingdom to come. And may we see that long, long story that culminates in your glory and the liberation of all people. Amen.